Welcome to To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Rachel Lyon to explore the latest in global cybersecurity news, trending topics, and industry transformation initiatives impacting governments, enterprises, and our way of life. Now, let's get to the point. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of To The Point Podcast. I'm Rachel Lyon here with my co-host, Eric Trexler. Eric, how you doing yes. today? I am well. I am well. <laughs> I've got a quick story for you. My, my, okay. my uh, One of our employees sent me an email that, or a text this morning saying, hackers have breached organizations in defense and other sensitive sectors, security firm says. Exclusive CNN. It's, uh, we're recording on November 8th. And I went and read it and I was like, oh, another day, another day. <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, there was nothing like like big there. It was like, oh, yeah, we've got some problems. Thanks for acknowledging them, CNN. Yeah. <laughs> and they're yeah. getting some spins. So I'm okay, but we'll, we'll recover from that. <laughs> anyway, how are you? I'm well. I'm well. Um, getting ready for all the holidays ahead. Everywhere I go, it's nothing but festive cheer and I love this time of year. I got to tell you, I love this time of year so much. So I can't okay. wait. I can't wait for all the food, the lights, the food, the revelry. Yeah. The so does our adversary. <laughs> we let our guard down at this time of the year. But anyway, That's who true. do we have today? Oh, I'm so excited. We have Kurt Dukes. He is the executive vice president and general manager uh, for security best practices at the Center of Information Security, Center for Information Security. Um, and I want to say that they have an amazing mission here, and I just want to call that out for folks that aren't familiar with it. Um, they make the connect safer place for people, businesses, and governments through our core competencies, competencies of collaboration and innovation. Um, and just welcome, welcome to the podcast, Kurt. I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. Hey, Rachel, thank you for having me. And Eric, good, uh, good to reconnect with you, my friend. Likewise, likewise. And, and, and let me just a little on your background. You were the deputy national manager for uh, national security systems at NSA for many years, long tenured career there before your retirement. So thank you for yes. what you've done for our country. Um, yeah, really, really appreciate your service. So thank you. And I think you're continuing the mission. I am, uh, you know, and, and thanks for, for, for that shout out. Yes, I, I, I am old. Uh, I, I started as a, <laughs> as a lowly uh, computer scientist uh, uh, at the agency. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I thought I would, you know, only be there for three to five years and then I would exit and go to the, to the private sector. Um, turns out, you know, it, it has a, uh, just a enticing uh, mission there at the National Security Agency. And, uh, you know, three years turned to five, turned to 10, turned to 20, turned to uh, 30 plus years. And, uh, you know, I, I, I never had a, I never had a bad day there. I just had long days there. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I never had a bad day in my time working with the team there either. We had, we had Dick Schaefer on early on in the, uh, in the podcast, probably, I don't know, one of the first 50 episodes maybe. And he, he was a Marine and he ended up at NSA one day and had, had great stories about it. And, and, uh, I'd love to know, like, yeah. how did you how did you decide that NSA was your track? We we, we get yeah. a lot of NSA and and CIA personal personnel on here, and the stories I find are amazing. Like, how do you get to an agency like that? 
Yeah. Yeah. Hey, that's, that's a great question. So I'm going to have to go back in history a little bit here. So um, okay. buckle up. Um, so, you know, Dick Schaefer, he's a Marine. Well, Kurt Dukes, he joined the Air Force. So at age 17, oh, I enlisted. Much smarter, more. Rachel. That, <laughs> right here. It's up here in the noggin. Golf courses, good food, air conditioning. I was an Army guy. I wasn't that smart. Exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I, Kurt. Go ahead. No, I, uh, I chose the country club service. Uh, and uh, and so what had happened was, um, you know, I got posted to Berlin, Germany, you know, and that was at the height of the, the Cold War, oh, you know, wow. Berlin being a divided city. Um, and while I was there, you know, you know, working out of uh, Templehof Air Base, um, you know, there was this other uh, agency called, you know, National Security Agency, even though they tried not, they tried to minimize that they were there. Um, but no, they, um, they were actually located in Berlin, Germany. And I had the opportunity to try to understand better that, you know, who they were. Um, and so when I um, um, separated from the Air Force, I, I stayed five years, went to school on the GI Bill, got my uh, computer science degree from the University of Florida. The very first place I wanted to, you know, potentially sign on with was the National Security Agency. Uh, so I applied uh, while I was at the University of Florida. And, you know, unfortunately, government um, hiring is, is a bit slow. Um, and so it, it took several months. Uh, but pers- I was perseverance yeah, proved uh, proved uh, uh, proved out and I actually signed on with them. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. Um, but, yeah, I, I knew what they did um, what, for my time in the Air Force. And I just, um, you know, I thought I want to go and serve my country some more, but this time as a civilian. Um, and right. that's exactly what I did. Wow. Very nice. So when you, the months it took, were they communicating with you? Um, they may do that today. Um, back then, it <laughs> okay. was kind of a more of a, uh, you know, a black hole. Um, and so you applied. Uh, they took your, um, you know, your resume. And this is old, uh, old school where you actually had, you know, physical copies of a resume. Right. So you had to mail it in or something like that, right? Right. And you had wow. to. Okay. There was a there was a government form that you had to fill out, you know, as yeah. well. Um, and then it then it was quiet. It was cricket. Uh, for so months. you're in yeah. school. You're programming away, taking your classes. You hear nothing. You hear nothing. Um, You're getting then, to the point where you like. When did you hear something? What? 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 Were you a junior or senior? So yeah. this is this is my senior year, and you know, of course, okay. you know, you're interviewing for for you know jobs, other positions, and, right? And so, and I was uh, I was continuing interviewing, uh, and I had a couple offers, and it was um, I found out in um, in December. Of, I'm going to date myself here again, December of 1983. Um, and so they said, hey, we'd like to bring you up, fly you up to um, up to the Fort Meade area for, for an interview. And so okay. they scheduled that in, uh, in late January. I flew up and then signed on and uh, I actually became a government employee on, um, in March of 1980, 1984. Wow. So, so when did you graduate? When did you finish your classes and graduate? Uh, December of 83. So I was basically- So you you found out about the interview just as you were about to graduate. You were winter graduation. Correct. High likelihood you had another job lined up or you were were under stress and pressure to get another job. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. I had a a job lined up. I just had not formally accepted the offer yet. And and your dream came true, fortunately, just in time. I wonder how many people we lose due to that- that, uh, that that bureaucracy or delay, right? 
I can tell you in cybersecurity right now, if we have a good hand candidate, I tend to be slow, which is crazy for people who know me, but it's like, get them, get them hired right now before you lose now. it. Yes. It's crazy. Yeah, it's, you it's go very competitive today. Um, and yeah. you know, I don't know how any company uh, in private or, or any company or any government in, uh, institute that can, uh, um, you know, survive if they don't if they don't streamline their hiring process, especially when it comes right. to uh, in the area of cybersecurity. Well, and you're not calling up 1-800-NSA-JOBS and, and uh, getting an update on your status either. That's, that's <laughs> I have a website now, and I, you know, I, haven't, I haven't applied for obvious reasons, but they have a website, and I think you can actually get status now online. So, yeah. Okay, so good progress. Yeah. How, last question, and I'll let Rachel move us on from the good old days. How long did it take to get your clearance back in those days? Ooh, Ooh, uh, you know, that's an excellent question. Um, and believe it or not, um, I pride myself in the fact that um, I had, uh, so I interviewed in January. They made an offer um, shortly, you know, they made a conditional offer shortly thereafter. And then I came up in March, early March, um, okay. and, and, and signed on. And within the first two weeks of me being um, at NSA, uh, I had my clearance. I got indoctrinated um, and was fully cleared. So the clearance process for me was actually fairly, uh, fairly smooth. Forward. Now, uh, granted, you know, I had spent five years in the military, right? You know, and right. they kind of knew where I was, you know. And, right. uh, and you were young still. So you, right. you, you were in, up through high school, military. Had a, had a, had a clearance. Yeah, and then, and so, yeah. so they only had to worry about those. Um, it turned out it was, I think, two years. I, I kind of. Um, went accelerated to get my undergraduate in computer science and did it in two years. Okay. And uh, and so they only had to, you know, kind of I had to document those two years, what I did, things, uh, you know, things I may or may not have done, um, you know, during those two years. Uh, but it, it it was a fairly straightforward progress uh, process for me. OK, I, I was very similar. I mean, GI Bill, huge benefit from the from the government. Loved it. OK, Rachel, back to you. <laughs> this is actually this is kind of more fun in some ways. Um, well, I would I would love to dig into and, and we were talking a little bit about this before we got on, but you know um, CIS is celebrating you know basically twenty years of, of kind of this this group of people that came together you know private and and government um, and they saw this problem and they wanted to do something about it and and I would love if there's kind of um, you know I know you guys have a timeline on on the website but I I would love for folks to better understand just how many amazing milestones um, this organization has had in the last 20 years and, and what you're offering people today. Yeah. So first thing I would tell you is, you know, me uh, articulating the timeline. Uh, I don't know that we have enough time on this, on this podcast, <laughs> but uh, I will maybe touch on a, a few of the, uh, of the highlights. First thing I will tell you, Rachel, is the um, there is absolutely a role for a nonprofit um, when it comes to cybersecurity, security best practice guidance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's um, government publishes a lot, but there's, you know, some entities may not trust fully government. Right. The private sector offers exquisite uh, technology and capability, but, you know, they're in it, they're in it for a profit. Right. So in that middle spot is the, is a, is the role of a nonprofit that kind of bridges uh, between the two, uh, they're, they're not seen as a competitor to the private sector. Right. They're seen uh, and they're viewed as um, being able to quickly come up with best practice guidance uh, that is um, 
globally available uh, in that mm-hmm. regard. So as far as milestones, um, yes, you're right. We just um, we just went over 20 years as the Center for Internet Security. And uh, it all started out with, you know, at, at the time, um, the National Security Agency, the Information Assurance Directorate, um, they actually created what we called security, uh, um, security configuration guides. Mm-hmm. Um, and then um, a nonprofit called the Center for Internet Security was started. And its role was to take um, that configuration guidance and turn those into CI uh, into benchmarks, right. um, and so and over time they became the de facto standard for security configuration um, recommendations, right? And so N- NSA didn't need to do it any long all longer. There was a nonprofit to do it for them. And then the um, the second important milestone was um, the multi-state information um, sharing and analysis center. It was created uh, up in uh, New York State, um, and it had a number of the um, uh, states in that in that area had formed uh, that this ISAC to share cyber threat mm-hmm. intelligence, and so um, they looked uh, they looked to uh, rehome themselves with a nonprofit, and so they joined up with the Center for Internet Security. So now we have two parts: we had the um, cyber threat intelligence sharing piece from the MS ISAC, and we had um, uh, CIS. Uh, um, uh, security configuration benchmarks from from CIS, and then the third piece was uh, another nonprofit called the Council on Cybersecurity, and uh, it really was uh, formed to kind of come up with you know what are the uh, best uh, controls for organizations to standardize on as part of our you know their cybersecurity program, right. and so uh, the Council for cyber, uh, on Cybersecurity they formed. Um, and then they became part of the CIS. So we're we're um, we're the we're the sum of three parts, and it actually makes a lot of sense what we do. Um, we have grown um, from um, from a small maybe you know ten person nonprofit to we're now over three hundred uh, employees at, at CIS, and uh, and, wow. and and we are our brand is is global. Uh, it's not mm-hmm. just here in the U.S., but globally, um, folks are downloading our our benchmarks and our critical security controls um, at a frenetic pace. So, Kurt, just to summarize, to make sure I understand it, the, the big component talks about information sharing, sharing what threats are out there that are relevant to certain constituencies, whatever communities, whatever it may be. So, understanding of the threat, the benchmarks really get down to. Here's how you lock down systems to protect against the threat. And then the, the, the best practices, or I think you called them controls, that's more around the here's how you protect the organization. This is more about how do you, how do you run a proper program? Yeah, you nailed it. So first okay. piece is always about threat. And so yep. uh, for, for us- Understand who's coming at you. Right. So for the Center for Internet Security, you know, we're, we're looking at the uh, at the SLTT community, that's states, localities, tribal areas uh, and, and territories, uh, understanding what their threat picture looks like and then trying to devise, um, you know, specific uh, configuration recommendations for security products. You know, think, you know, Microsoft Windows 10 as an example for them. So how you'd actually configure that product securely. Um, and then that's part of an overall overall um, overall um, you know, organizations environment, right? So, so not only do they have, um, you know, um, endpoints that, that are running Windows 10, 
but you know they have uh, firewalls and they have routers and they may have servers um, and so that's part of an environment and so what the critical security controls do is help you secure that environment so you know think think benchmarks for individual products think right. critical security controls as part of the environment that you want to protect and, and the benchmarks i mean you've got mac os you've got windows centos you've got mobile devices you've got Cloud providers, how to secure Alibaba Cloud, the AWS Cloud, micro, I mean, pick your cloud provider up here. If you're not up here, you probably aren't in the cloud business. Um, <laughs> network devices, desktop software, printer. I mean, there's an extensive list here. There is. I mean, I think we cover almost uh, over 40 um, different vendor products. Um, yeah. And within those vendor products, uh, various, ver uh, you know, several versions of that of that vendor's products. As, as you know, um, you know, um, not every organization will roll over to the latest um, version of the operating system. So we have to maintain um, older versions uh, for a period of time as well. So I think we're well okay. over 100 of um, individual benchmarks. And then, Eric, to your point, uh, you know, at one point in my early in my life, everything was on prem, you know, but yeah. today, you know, you're running in a hybrid uh, hybrid environment where, mm -hmm. um, you know, you have certain assets in the cloud, you know, that are being managed in the cloud. And then you also have uh, assets that are on prem uh, and you've got to manage that that's um, security enterprise, you know, in, in that environment. Great. And, and then I see you've also mapped to the MITRE attack framework. Yes, we do. Um, you know, yeah. I was glad to see that actually come along. Yeah, um, that's a big one. It is. And, and what that brought the community was what are the um, the attacker uh, tactics? What tactics do they use to attack, um, you know, um, entities? And then within those um, tactics, what are the actual individual techniques that they use? They further refined it uh, in the last um, year to 18 months uh, to also uh, capture sub techniques uh, for that. And so what we did um, about um, almost two years ago was create what we call the community defense model. And uh, it is mapped to MITRE ATT&CK. Uh, but what we did was take um, those um, individual um, attack um, tactics as well as the, the techniques and then said, what would be uh, an effective mitigation to disrupt that attacker technique. Um, and so those mitigations are what we call the CIS controls and the underlying um, CIS uh, safeguards within within that controls family uh, for that. And so what does that tell you? It, it proves that um, if you implement that safeguard, then you're going to be effective at uh, minimizing or disrupting that attacker's technique. So think about it in the, in the context of ransomware, which is, you know, kind of the scourge today. We're doing a lot of shows on it these days. Right. Mm -hmm. and, um, you know, so what we can do is say implement this set of safeguards again, you know, the CIS critical security controls and within the controls, a number of the safeguards. These are very effective at minimizing the um, an adversary's ability to to use ransomware to attack you. And, and so what is the biggest? It, it, it sounds great. Is what is the biggest um, issue with getting adoption? Is it is it just time, or is it awareness, or you know? Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm assuming most people don't put good security best practices or benchmarks in place across their infrastructure these days, at least on experience. Yeah, I, I think there's two um, um, two areas that are a concern. Uh, the first one is there's just multiple frameworks out there, right? Okay. So um, you have ISO 27001, 
Uh, you have the NIST cybersecurity framework, 853, 801.71. Well, I was going to say you have a good handful, dozen of them. That's right. Then you have, you know, when it comes to um, um, card readers uh, or um, um, point of sale terminals, you have um, PCI, uh, payment card industry, uh, you know, that, you know, is a, is a requirement. You have HIPAA requirements. Medical side. On, right. On down the line. And so I think for organizations, you know, they may have multiple frameworks that they're having to be measured against. Right. And so that's a cost to them to implement, you know, or be measured against that at some at some frequency for that. So I think that's one multiple frameworks that are maybe competing at some level. They they're not always or overlapping, right? And then the the second, but more probably the more more important reason is is you know resources. And so, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a for profit company. Um, you know, you know, securing your enterprise, that, that's a that's a cost to you. Right. Yes, you do it because of a brand and things of that nature, but that's a cost to you. Um, and and so and you're trying to be as efficient with your with your um, your dollar as possible in that regard. And I would also tell you that uh, if you're um, a smaller medium enterprise, you may not have the uh, resources that a for profit right. company has. Um, and so um, you want you. You want to know what is the minimum set of um, of controls that I need to implement to prove that I have an effective cybersecurity program um, for that, and so um, that's really what you know. I think uh, that are two of the two of the risk, two of the areas of concern is a you know two competing frameworks and B um, you know that you know it, it takes resources to actually implement uh, these controls um, and in. Um, how do you actually prove that you're effective in that regard? And that's where my, going back to MITRE attack, if I can point back to, yes, indeed, this safeguard is effective against that attacker technique, then I can demonstrate to um, um, to my board members, to my senior leaders that uh, I have an effective um, cybersecurity program. Okay. Okay. And then information sharing, I, I understand you work with, with DHS, I'm assuming CISA, for helping to get information out there. That's right. Uh, we do it uh, in, in two ways. Um, so uh, we act as a conduit uh, for for CISA. Now CISA can also engage directly, but um, if they if they see threats, you know, uh, from their from their national lens, then they can feed that to the uh, the multi state information um, um, sharing and analysis center, and then we'll promulgate it out to um, to our um, our members. The other areas is that. Um, we actually have um, a number of sensors that we provide, um, you know, to all um, all the SLTT members, um, and that allows us to um, collect, you know, th- you know, data that you know, you know, to look for uh, active threats uh, to our to our constituency, um, and so uh, okay. and then we can then uh, if we if we detect a threat, then we're able to feed that out to the to the larger community as well. Oh, very cool. Right? Yes. I, I feel like, you know, NSA was doing this for so many years, but it wasn't, from my perspective, it wasn't getting out. It, it's it's nice to see this getting out. So the information is at least there if you, right. if you want to seek it out. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because, you know, when I 
signed on with the agency in eighty in nineteen eighty four. You you know you know the old terms like no such agency, uh, right. you know, and, and uh, you know and again you know we wanted uh, NSA wanted to maintain a very low profile. Yeah. So they would have never, in in the wildest imagination, would have thought to publish, you know, guidance on on threats, uh, guidance on best practices. It's just not what what uh, NSA did, uh, and it really took um, the information insurance director to kind of change that mindset, you know. And and we actually um, published the first security configuration guidance on at the time Windows NT, uh, and this was you know what you know, how you would actually configure Windows NT uh, securely. Now, Eric, I will say that some folks, when they saw that, you know, they, you know, they, they questioned, should, is, should we actually trust NSA uh, with this guidance? But, you know, the good news is, is, you know, within the cybersecurity community, you get a lot of peer review. And, uh, and so folks actually looked at the guidance and they actually saw, you know, NSA was actually doing something to try to help the community. Um, And so from those early days, to today, uh, with the cyber, uh, with the cybersecurity directorate, and publishing, you know, you know, um, you know, um, bulletins on on threats, um, bulletins on how you would configure things securely. Um, yes, NSA has gone a long ways uh, from those early days in 1984. Well, and it's out there and published. So if somebody has an issue with it, like you said, it's. It's yeah. online peer review. I mean, you can you can comment right away. I'm, I'm sure you get some whack jobs, but but it's all out there. So if if you don't like this configuration for this reason, yeah, you know, it's funny you can talk, talk about it, right? You know, and and you know, when we first published that Windows NT configuration guide, you know, I, I can remember one of um, the senior leaders at the agency saying, "Well, what if we got it wrong?" You know what will happen? You know, I mean, oh my God, we'll look, right. we'll look like we're dumb. And and the re- and the answer back was, no. Hey, we'll thank them. We'll maybe send them an NSA coffee mug. Um, you know, thank them for correcting uh, correcting that for us, and then we'll update the guidance. I mean, this right. is this is about right. not a lot of downside. Right. right. This is about a community, and uh, and you know, and frankly, the rest is history. I mean, it it went off very well. We. You know, we we moved that over to the Center for Internet Security um, when it comes to benchmarks. And now now, you know, you know, when it comes to configuration guidance, um, CIS does that on behalf of, you know, frankly, on behalf of the government, frankly, on behalf of the world. I mean, we, yeah. we make that freely available. It's a good yeah. service. It is. The whole community mindset, I think, is critical, right? I mean, if we're ever going to get ahead of this thing. <laughs> well, we, as we've talked about, Rachel, I mean, there is no right. one yeah. agency that really owns this space. Exactly. I'll tell you what, I, I, I've been hearing uh, Jen Easterly at, at CISA mm-hmm. speak a lot about, you know, complex, unique passwords, multi-factor authentication. And I think they've got the probably a, one of the largest voices out there right now and just simple things to make us safer. Right. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I mean, I'm hopeful, um, you know, I think, um, I think one of, um, you know, a, a, a very large um, vendor, um, you know, you know, recently did a blog posting on it, you know, has the end of passwords finally come, you know, I'm hopeful, uh, you know, Eric and Rachel, I'm hopeful, um, but I still <laughs> think there's a little bit more life in them. I mean, it's just, right. you know, I mean, we've been talking about getting rid of passwords for gosh, uh, a decade now, but, right. you know, I, I I look at um, you know two-factor authentication or multi-factor authentication. Uh, its day, its day is coming very 
very, very soon. And, and I, I saw with the uh, the administration's executive order, you know, that, you know, mandating uh, MFA, you know, I think I think that's uh, that's a huge signal that, you know, for for us to move to um, multiple forms of uh, authenticating yourself. Um, and it's also is it's a core capability within zero trust architecture for that. Uh, you know, right. I, I would say that, you know, all of us do online banking today, especially with the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, yes, every one of us, you know, is using some some uh, two factor or, or multi factor authentication yes. as part of that that banking experience. And and it's come second nature for us. So I don't know if everybody is. You really? think every bank is mandating multi-factor authentication at this point? I, you know, I, I, I can tell you factually between um, at least the banks I, I, um, I, I'm with, as well as with uh, a number of the mutual funds uh, that right. I'm associated with, every one of them I'm associated with has at least two-factor authentication. Now, I feel like for some of mine, it's still optional. I use uh, it. Mm. Regardless, if you're a listener out there or you know somebody who, you know, you're listening and you want to talk, multi-factor authentication. Yes. It, yes. Other than a little bit of delay, a little bit of extra work, it will not hurt you to use it. Definitely use it on your high sensitive yes. assets yeah. like banking accounts, yes. insurance and, and the like. Yeah. yeah, I mean, but, but you know, I mean, it, what's the delay? You know, thirty seconds. You know, well, you've got to look it up in your authenticator. Or if you depends. lose your phone and your yeah, authenticator's exactly. there, you've got an issue, or you've got Phones to receive the, the text house. or email. You got to walk, Kurt. I mean, oh, it's Lord, so much work. <laughs> I'm telling Kurt, I'm going to prove your. I'm going to. I'm going to prove this out to you. Watch this, Rachel. <laughs> yes. Do you use MFA on all of your accounts? No. No. Do you use MFA on all of your accounts that have the option? No, no. Do you use it on all of your critical accounts? Yes, where there's money involved. Yes. Okay, so money is the determining factor. Money is my determining factor, yes. What about personal data? You mean like my email? Oh, I don't know. Is that personal Email, data? social security numbers. I mean, if you're logging into, I'm trying to think of something. Let's I let's say you're logging into your there, insurance, Eric. your car insurance <laughs> account. You're logging into that. Is that uh, set up with MFA or are you just well, logging yeah, into the username and password? Well, I have USAA and they, oh, so, okay. they do not play they, around with Yeah, the, they mandate. Yeah, they do. They're good. Okay. They're good like that. So I, I feel really secure. I mean, it's I, I try to MFA the places where I don't think the information's out there yet. But I mean, everything else, you, you got my Hotmail password. You got my social security number. Let's be honest. So it's just have at it, you know, but nice. I, I do want to protect my bank account. <laughs> everybody, everybody has their different, their own threshold. <laughs> of where they will take on a little extra work. I mean, it's not a lot of extra work, right? Well, again, from my lens, it's not. I mean, and every one of the um, web email accounts I have, you know, and through all the major, you know, providers here, every one of them is, you know, for me, at least two-factor authenticated. Most um, of them they, are, you know, yeah. Yes, maybe it's an option, but even some now, they're actually, I think. They make you do yeah, it. Yeah. Google doesn't even give you the option any longer. It, yeah. It's, it's mandated. So frustrating. Right? So Rachel, Rachel's frustrated by it. I hate it. I just want to get to my Gmail. I do. Right? You just want to get there. Well, because my Gmail's where That's I get all problem. my junk mail, you know, but occasionally a good mail. So, yeah. But um, there's that yeah. trade off between the ease of use and security that we all make. And it's got to be easy. 
So when you listen to CISA, they're, they're throwing out the number that MFA, multi-factor authentication, two-factor authentication, call it what you will, is 99% effective. Yep. I don't know where the statistic's coming from. It sounds legit to me. Yeah, there was a- That's pretty good. It is good. Where's Where does facial recognition, though, fall on that? Now, if everything could be face, I think that would be pretty good. If you had a face though. like mine, it's not going to work very well. Luckily, this is a podcast. <laughs> well, it definitely degrades. That yeah, there, that's, a, that's a form of authentication, right? So it could be that could you know, be either um, um, you know, fingerprint or, or facial recognition as one form, and the other one is... Uh, is a is a pin or something, right? You right. know, four or six um, uh, digit um, you know pin, you know, as well. So uh, I mean, so you know, for I'm 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 an Apple user. I'm unabashed a fan of uh, of a- Apple's ecosystem. And, Me too. IT department, get with it. Right, and you know, <laughs> so I mean, I, I use both. I mean, uh, for that, I just. Uh, so yes, uh, it, it it is a could be considered a um, you know a second or multi um, uh, form right. of authentication, right? Just like the Apple Watch, if you're if you're near your right. computer, you can log in the Touch ID, the bio. I mean, there's so much capability out there in our clients. I, I think the problem right. is it's not ubiquitous, right? It's not it's right. not on every client, right? You can't rely on Apple because they're Android users or other users. Right. So it makes it a little more difficult than the standard, okay, we'll text you a six-digit PIN or, or get on your authenticator of choice. But, but Rachel, I would look at biometrics as probably a higher order of, of authentication. Right? Because yeah. somebody could steal your phone number or your email address, reroute your account. Your secondary authentication source goes to them. It's hard. Yeah. Admittedly, what? it's hard. Really yeah. hard to steal your face. And in my case, you wouldn't want to steal it, so... Well, I will say to that point, though, Kurt, kind of where you're getting at him, you know, because I, like I said, I think my passwords for all my email accounts are out there, but I, I get the attempt, you know, you get that email where they're saying, hey, someone tried to access your account. If it wasn't you, though, don't worry, you got multi-factor authentication. They're not going to get through, you know, so that makes me feel good. Although I, I'm, I'm torn. Is it a real email from, from like Google or is it a spam email just trying to get me to click on something too? Like that's... That's where I'm trying to navigate today. I can't tell when I'm getting a legitimate, you should be worried about your account email <laughs> versus. It's difficult. Yeah, exactly. Which, which is fake. Cause now the way they can do these email addresses, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. I, you know, I'll tell you, I mean, um, you know, there's, you know, two, three primary attack vectors that adversaries use today. Um, you're keying on one, you know, uh, mm-hmm. phishing lures or, you know, they're, you know, you get an email in, in your in, inbox, uh, or it's now even a text message, right? Um, right. Link. And, uh, you know, and it looks legit. I mean, and, and they have, you know, adversaries have, have refined, you know, um, you know, the phishing lures today. Um, but what, you know, so that's one. The second one, of course, is, is them, you know, you visiting a website or, or there being a link in the email right. and you going visiting a website and that's where they, they download that initial um you know, um, attack uh, or n- initial exploit to get local access uh, for that. And then, of course, the third one being, um, um, you know, certain protocols, RDP being an example, remote desktop mm-hmm. protocol. Right. Um, and if you haven't configured that correctly, that's an a- um, opportunity for an adversary to attack. But what I would tell you in the example you cite, you get an email, you get a text message, you don't have to respond to it. You can you can go that's out true. of there, right? You can, just, you know, you can log in 
you know, don't even use that link, but use your right. own link and log in. And, and, oh boy, you know, a lot and, of work there. I don't see that <laughs> happening. It's so easy to click. I can do it with my left finger or my right finger. <laughs> right, Rachel? Oh, no, particularly on a work system. I just click away because, you know, you work's ever got me call, covered. <laughs> I mean, do, would you ever call the bank or somebody, Amazon or Macy's, who sent you an email saying your account's being compromised? Please click this link. I called Apple once okay. when they're. But I want to say, I think it was a sophisticated lure because after I called the number, they're like, hey, why don't you screen share your iPhone with us? We'll send you the Wait, You called the number click. in the email? I did. I did. Not the yeah. Apple. Yeah, the, the slight I, breakdown there. I know. I know. Duh. Afterward, you know, but yeah. that's how I was. I thought, well, let me call him. But then, yeah, it occurred to me, you're right, Eric, that number could be. But I think that's the problem. Like, the the, the yeah. typical user it looked re it was really well done though they it may had read like about a, ransomware yeah. they may read read about spear phishing and they're like oh phishing i like phishing they, they don't understand though the the one the way the adversary works and these right. days it's all automated so they work and they work all, and it evolves but i don't think they understand the consequences or the potential consequences well no. either and that's that's an education process that i, I don't know how we get that across to to peoples. I mean, we had Sharon, remember, and I, I forget yes. the country, Rachel. We, we, we did an interview a couple months ago, Kurt, mm -hmm. on, on Facebook. And mm -hmm. Facebook was the authoritative source for information in this country. And because it was a U.S. company, right. they didn't question anything. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a lot of people out there across the world who are very susceptible. They don't know how or what to question. Right. It's a tough place. So, so yeah. Kurt, it, in, yeah, in I was just going to say. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. I just want to say real quick, you're uh, Eric. You're absolutely right. You know, we have got to simplify it. You know, for um, for users. And again, not every user uh, has a background. You know, in 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 cybersecurity, right? So I do things a certain way because I was classically trained that way. But you know, for too many um, individuals, you're absolutely right. They're going to click on the link. They're going to call that number that's uh, on the uh, on the email. Um, and nothing against you, Rachel. Um, but <laughs> no, no, happy to do. be an example. Yeah. But we've got to simplify it. And the other point I would make is is that we've got to also move to automating, um, you know, patch patch management. Um, yes. So that yes. even if they do Good get this, they can't do anything if, if you're fully right. patched. Now, yes, I know there's these things called zero-day exploits out there. Right. But for, you know, if you look at ransomware today, they're not using zero, zero day exploits. You know, they're, yeah. they're using known vulnerabilities for which there is a patch. Because um, why not? They work. Yeah. Right. They work. And so, so bottom line is, is you're absolutely right, Eric. We have got to simplify that. And then, then we've got to do public service uh, yes. announcements around here's how things and, and make it, you know, uh, I'm going to use, I'm, I don't mean this with any malice in my heart, but we've got to make it stupidly simple for, yes. for consumers to just say, oh, okay, I can do that. You know, I can do that. It's, uh, it's only two or three steps to do that, you know, and no, not, right. not, not delay, but yeah. just, I can, I can configure this, this way, this, we, until we make it, make it simple uh, for, uh, for users, then you're absolutely right. I think, um, adversaries still have a, a seam, a gap that they can exploit. And they only have to be right once. They get as many tries right. as they as they care to have, and they're really low risks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. right? Who's going to deal with someone in Russia? Like you can't, like, unless Putin does, it's no one cares. Okay. So where is CIS tomorrow, five years from now? I mean, what are you working yeah. on yeah. to make the world a safer place? What are, what yeah. are your thoughts? 
Yeah, no. Hey, great question. And so I'll, I'll leave you with a couple things. You know, um, like I said, I, I still see us continuing uh, promulgation of security best practice guidance in the form of, of benchmarks and the critical security controls. Um, where I'm really focused on today, it really is around, you know, being able to demonstrate that our safeguards are effective against attacker techniques. That's today. Tomorrow, to your question is, is that I want to... I want to be able to get to the point where, you know, it'll cost you this amount to actually secure your enterprise. So right now, no one really talks about right. economic optimization and mitigations, right? And right. really, that's a lot of words to basically say, what, you know, okay, CIS, I believe you. These are the minimum things I need to do. Well, how much is that actually going to cost me? And so right. we're focused on coming up with costing models uh, for different environments uh, at, at different levels of complexity, so that okay. so that organizations can say, okay, I can I can implement that within my budget, um, and, and I can go to the next level potentially with this much additional budget. Right, exactly. and then you let the board or you let the management team decide yeah. what level of risk they're willing to take. That's right. So, so that's okay. one really is around economic optimization of those mitigations. The other area, which is to your point, um, is really about um, you know under, better understanding business uh, Im- impacts to um, to business operations, um, and then you know understanding you know the offset from what you've already com- um, implemented from a cybersecurity perspective, and so that would identify the gaps, um, and then you know that's where you need to either do additional spend. Or you offset that uh, that risk with um, with cyber insurance or something of that nature. So, so better better tying business impacts to um, to operational security configuration, which I think will tie into the insurance argument yeah. also. Exactly. Uh, that's the that's a. Yep. topic on all on its own. That's all. That's a podcast episode right there. We've done a couple, but yeah, I mean, like, Oof. hey, this is what we need to spend to get to this level, right? And then you can go to your insurance company and say, here's where we are. Okay. That's amazing. Thank you. You bet. Thank you for your time today. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. Nonprofit, the benchmarks are free. Just go to uh, cisecurity.org. I always put that extra S in there. I know, yeah. cisecurity.org. You can sign up for the benchmarks. They'll email them to you. Just sign up in the email, no cost. Exactly right. Hey, Eric, I want to say thank you for having me on. And Rachel, thank you for having me on. I love the interactive uh, engagement. uh, And uh, hopefully this is of some benefit to uh, to our listening audience. Well, we're like here, you, uh, you know, I guess we're a nonprofit podcast, Rachel. I don't know. We're not really selling anything here. But we're we're trying to make the world a safer place. And Rachel and I do feel that one day we're we're going to stumble upon the answer on how to secure the world from cyber threats. It's a very optimistic, lofty goal, but we'll get there. We will get there, 100%. We will. <laughs> okay, so in closing, Kurt, thank you so much. Thank you, Kurt. Rachel. All right, to MFA all our listeners. MFA those accounts. MFA the, those accounts. Come on. M- MFA, MFA. To all our listeners out there, that's right. Even if it's optional, MFA, you don't want to learn from my mistakes. I had to change all my passwords in one day within 30 minutes. It was horrible. <laughs> ah, and I had to reset my phone, OS, and all the things you don't don't want to do that. Uh, but thanks thanks to everyone for joining us for this week's episode with Kurt Dukes. Uh, we really, really, really enjoyed it. And if you want to get this episode or more episodes directly to your email inbox, you know what to do. Smash that subscription button. And leave some feedback. 
Yes, feedback, 100%. So until next time, everybody, stay safe. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. 